reading from 1 Peter 3, verse 1 to 7. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without the words without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hair, hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past put their hope in God. Used to adorn themselves, they submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live, your life with, as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you out of the grace gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is God's word. Thanks, Cathy. Good morning, everyone. What a, what a bumper service, hey? Don't, don't ever say we don't give you value for money. It's just, the fun just keeps coming. I especially want to say a big thank you to Tracy. It's just been so great to have you share and share from the heart. Uh, and I, I really can't think of a, of a more powerful way that we could love our community, which is really our vision here at Riverbank. So, so thank you for sharing. But now we come to 1 Peter chapter 3. And what a passage, hey? <laughs> uh, there probably aren't many of us who are going to go home after this and uh, post these verses on social media just as, a, as an inspirational quote uh, to share with the world. But why is that? Is it because there is something wrong with God's Word? Is it faulty? Is it out of date? Is it misogynistic? Well, we, we know that's not the case, don't we? We know that God's word is true. It's spoken by the one true God to all people through all time. And we know that it's clear. The Bible doesn't say one thing and, and mean the opposite. Uh, it's true, we've got to read it in context, we've got to study it carefully, but you don't need a PhD. God's word is clear. And God's word is also good. It gives us wisdom. It leads us into the good life. So, if God's Word is true, and God's Word is clear, and God's Word is good, then why do passages like this make us so uncomfortable? And I, and I think we need to admit that it's because of us. The problem with this passage is me and you. And the problem is the culture we live in, which has a, a really strong influence on us. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I believe that feminism has brought many great changes to our society that we should celebrate. I am so glad that women in Australia can now vote, uh, that they can have bank accounts and own property and receive a world-class education and work outside of the home. I'm so thankful for the courageous women who have come forward and told their stories and made us aware of of terrible verbal and physical and sexual harassment and abuse that we have tolerated for far too long. 
And I'm so thankful that domestic violence is publicly condemned in Australia, that rape in marriage is now a criminal offence, that evil people in positions of power are being exposed. But feminism doesn't get a wholehearted stamp of approval just because it has achieved many good things. There are also many ways in which feminism has actually strayed from God's good design, even sometimes actively rebelled against it. Uh, in solving some problems, it has created others. It has devalued some things that God holds dear, things that are actually essential to human flourishing. And perhaps most concerningly, it has profoundly changed the way we think about God's Word. You know, I, I suspect, I haven't taken a read of the room, but, but best case scenario, this passage is a bit confusing, and for many of us, it's, it's almost offensive. We come to this text, I have come to this text, I admit, with, with a little bit of a sense of mistrust, which is a problem. I've been nervous this week about standing up in front of you and saying anything that might be hurtful or sexist. But there is something that should scare me even more, and that is standing before God one day, and having failed to be His mouthpiece, and to proclaim the truth and the beauty of how He designed marriage. So, with that introduction in mind, we're jumping in. I want to invite you to look at this passage with me and hear what God has to say. And as we do that, I think, I hope, we will come to see that God's design for marriage is actually very, very good. Our structure is really simple. We're going to look at, first of all, what God says to wives in verses 1 to 6, then what He says to husbands in verse 7, and then we're going to land with hopefully some practical application to take away. So, first, what does God want to say to wives? Verse 1 begins, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. It's the main thing that Peter's saying to wives in verses 1 to 6, submit to your husbands. The S word. Uh, it's so uncomfortable that many Christians today have, have really tried to explain these verses away. And you can read all sorts of fascinating explanations if you want to. Even those of us who agree with the general idea of submission in marriage struggle to know what it looks like in practice. So, so let's unpack this. What is Peter calling wives to do when he says this? Well, first notice that he says, in the same way, which points us back to the passage Jack preached on last week, where we saw that slaves were submitting to their masters and we saw that Christ was patiently enduring mistreatment. But let me be crystal clear here. Peter is not saying wives submit to their husbands in the same way that a slave might submit to a master. Nor is he saying that submission means a wife should endure abuse from her husband in order to be Christ-like. We know that domestic abuse was illegal in Roman society when Peter was writing, as it is today, and Peter has just called us to obey the law. The Bible makes it very clear. No one is expected to stay with an abusive or a cheating spouse. Submission does not mean enduring violence. And we, as a church, should do everything we can to prevent and report domestic abuse. 
So then what is Peter saying? What is he referring back to? It's the principle he announced in chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Okay, this is really key. We've got to get this clear in our minds before we can move on. God is the Lord. Yep, God is the ultimate authority over all humans. And then beneath that ultimate authority, he's placed various other authority structures. Uh, That might be your parents, uh, that might be the government, that might be your employer. And all of us have to live in relationship to those authority structures. And Peter Peter is unfolding this basic principle, which is that if God places you in, in an authority structure which involves you being submissive, then be submissive. Uh, it doesn't matter if the authority is Christian or not, we still submit to it. Why? Because of those key words, for the Lord's sake. Uh, it's not primarily about submitting to another human. We're all equal. But we submit to them because of God. As we submit to Him, we submit to the authorities that He set up. Okay, how does that relate to marriage? Well, marriage is one of those God-given relationships where there's an authority structure and God calls the husband to lead and he calls the wife to follow, to submit. Now, this is a useful passage because of all the passages about marriage in the Bible, this one is the most helpful for showing us what submission is not. Shows us what submission is not. Let's, let's pick out a few things and get this clear. First, submission is not something that the husband ever enforces. It is voluntary. Peter says, submit yourselves. He never says to the husband, make your wife submit. Never. A wife's submission in marriage is commanded by the Lord, but it is not commanded by a husband. Second, submission doesn't mean that a woman can't think for herself or disagree with her husband. In fact... Verse 1, Peter says, Submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over. In other words, the wife in this example is right. Her husband is dead wrong. She's more enlightened than him. Which leads to point three, submission doesn't mean that you don't try to change your husband. You might have heard that phrase. Actually, Peter says, make it your mission to influence him and change him. The greatest task, win him for Christ. Fourth submission doesn't mean that you're just a pretty doll on his arm. Peter is going to say, hey, don't worry so much about outward adornment. Focus on inner beauty, on who you are as a person. And then fifth, submission doesn't mean that you should ever give up your faith or sin if your husband tells you to. Because God is the ultimate authority, not the husband. Peter is actually going to call wives to this, in this passage to courageously put God first and not give way to fear. Okay, so, I hope you're with me. I hope we've seen a few things that submission is not. But then what is Peter calling wives to do? Let's read verses 1 to 4 together. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. 
Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. So what do we notice about this godly wife? Uh, First of all, verse 2, she lives with purity. Uh, She's moral and upright in her actions. Verse 2 also says she's reverent. It means she fears God. And then verse 3, she isn't obsessed with her external appearance, her clothes, her jewelry, her hair, her makeup, her physique, which doesn't mean she's careless about her appearance. Jewelry and makeup aren't sinful, but her priority and her focus is on her inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Uh, Now, quiet isn't so much talking about speech here, it's talking about the state of her heart. Because she trusts God, this, this wife has an inner strength and a courage that enables her to go through life, hard things, storms, difficulties, an unbelieving husband with a, with a tranquil, humble, gentle attitude. And Peter says, that is a beautiful thing. Uh, in her excellent book called God's Good Design, which I recommend to you, Claire Smith writes... Peter's point is that moral purity, reverent fear, and a quiet spirit and gentle humility are really worth something. They are head-turning, expensive adornments as far as God is concerned. They are must-haves for a truly beautiful woman. End quote. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that freeing that God... God determines what is truly beautiful. And He's looking on the inside. I wonder how how you tend to gauge your beauty. Do you look in the mirror or in the Bible? Do you look at your body or do you look at your heart? We know that our world so often evaluates people on the external, which, which is tragic, isn't it? It just leads us to devalue so many people who are actually truly beautiful. And it leads us to despair when we don't look the way we did when we were 18 or 25, when in fact we might be growing more beautiful every day. God's Word tells us a better story about beauty. I don't know if you remember in chapter 1, Peter reminded us that all people are like grass, our glory withers and fades. But he also reminded us that there's an unfading inheritance in heaven. And those who humbly put their hope in that, they dress themselves in a beauty that lasts forever. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm still not very clear on what submission looks like in practice. In verses 5 to 6, Peter goes on to provide some role models. Uh, Ladies, I wonder who your role models are consciously or subconsciously, I wonder which women you admire, who you aspire to be like. Well, for Peter, the best role models are not the celebrities of today, but the holy women of the past. 
Verse 5 literally says, they adorned themselves, made themselves beautiful by submitting to their husbands. And then Peter gives us a specific example. He says, like Sarah, uh, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. Uh, What's Peter referring to here? Well, there's only one place in the Bible where Sarah is mentioned to call Abraham Lord. Uh, It's Genesis 18 verse 12. And it's a funny story. Sarah's alone in the tent and she overhears a prediction that she's going to get pregnant uh, even though she's about 90 years old. Uh, And then verse 12 says, So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, Abraham's 100, will I now have this pleasure? Now, why would Peter choose this random moment to illustrate Sarah's submission? Well, John Piper says, it's, it's a private moment. It's a throwaway comment when she's in default mode. And so it's actually a little window into Sarah's true character. For Sarah, submission began with an everyday attitude of of respecting her husband and speaking well of him. Uh, and, And in her whole life, this attitude had enabled her to leave her homeland, to follow Abraham, to enter the unknown, to face all sorts of challenges. She was able to trust that God would care for her, and then she followed Abraham as he followed God. And Peter says, that's, that's an example that all Christian wives should follow. Uh, instead of carving new ground, Peter calls you to be like your great-great-great-great-grandmother, Sarah. You're part of her family, and Peter wants you to bear a family resemblance to her. Which is why he says in verse 7, You are her daughters, if you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. I love that Peter included that phrase, she does not give way to fear. Yes, a a Christian wife is called to submit and follow the lead of her husband, but it is not, it is not because she is weak, or fearful, or slave-like. It's quite the opposite. It's because she is strong. And she is intentional. And she has put her hope in God. God is the reason that she voluntarily chooses to invest in the marriage partnership and support her husband. And God is the only one that she fears, not him or anyone else. And and Sarah has many daughters in this church. I'm sure of it. What What a beautiful, powerful way to live. It is so countercultural, so countercultural. But isn't it so in sync with the greatest human being who ever lived? Christ, the one who humbly and joyfully submitted to his Father. Not out of weakness, but out of strength. Not for his own benefit, but to help and bless and build up others. Okay, there we go. We've said a lot about the role of a wife. But now in verse 7, Peter addresses husbands. I feel a bit more comfortable here. We've had six verses for wives and one verse for husbands. That might seem a bit lopsided, right? But don't forget, Ephesians 5 is another key passage about marriage. And it, it gives the guys 
a run for their money and says very little to wives. So have a look at that later, men. In this section, Peter is mostly addressing wives because his theme, what he's talking about, is submission. But he will not move on without a few choice words for husbands, words of rebuke even, for any husband who thinks that the submission of his wife is something that he can take advantage of in any way. So what does God want to say to husbands? We'll go next slide when you're ready, and we'll read verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, first of all, we need to be clear Peter is not calling husbands to do basically exactly the same thing as wives. It's not, well, she submits to him and he submits to her. No, the commands are different because God has given men and women different roles in marriage. Peter gives husbands two instructions. First, be considerate as you live with your wives. Literally, live together according to knowledge. That is, Know your wife. Know what she needs. Know her desires. Know how to build her up. And know what God calls you to be, to be a man of God, to be a leader who is humble, who is servant-hearted and sacrificial and Christ-like. And the second command is treat your wife with respect or with honor. And then Peter gives two reasons for this. First, because your wife is an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. Don't miss the significance of that. Men and women are absolutely equal before God in value and worth. Both were made in His image. Both are sinners saved by the same Savior and recipients of all the same spiritual blessings. And that would have been so countercultural in, in Peter's day. Because women were not seen as being equal to men. Claire Smith writes that in the ancient world, wives were considered intellectually and even morally inferior. And so their submission to their husbands took place not in the context of of their equality, but in the context of their inequality. And Peter says, no. These different roles in marriage have nothing to do with different value or merit. In Claire Smith's words, they are based on God's good design for His equally loved and equally adopted children. Uh, but Peter also gives another reason why husbands should be considerate and respectful. He says, because the wife is the weaker partner. Now, this is definitely not talking about spiritual or intellectual or emotional weakness. We've actually just seen Peter call wives to a very intelligent, strong, strategic, spiritual way of life. Uh, World-renowned scholar Karen Jobes argues 
it's probably referring to the physical differences between men and women. Most scholars agree, in which case Peter is making it very clear that any sort of physical abuse is completely inappropriate. Although, I think that Claire Smith also proposes another good explanation, and you can choose for yourself. She says this, I think it is more likely Peter is recognizing the fact that in any ordered relationship of authority and submission, the one who submits has a weaker or a lesser authority. The act of submission leaves them vulnerable to the quality of leadership that the other provides. Whichever conclusion you come to, the principle is the same. Uh, the way that a husband uses his authority should be to care, to bless, to lift up, to bestow dignity, not to use or abuse in any way. Husbands, woe to you if you use your God-given authority to hurt rather than bless your wife. Peter adds a warning at the end of verse 7, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. In other words, you may think you can get away with mistreating your wife, but God will not listen to you. You won't be heard by him. He will not bless you with his favor if you mistreat the precious ones that he has called you to care for. Okay, as we finish, let's draw out a few practical things from this passage. First, I'll speak again to wives. It is hard to say exactly what submission looks like. Although it may be easier to pick it when it's not happening. From what Peter has said here, it certainly involves certain actions. Uh, we're told that Sarah obeyed and respected Abraham. And it involves certain attitudes. We're told that we should have a gentle and quiet spirit. Uh, as Claire Smith says, how this works out in practice will be different for each Christian wife depending on her personality, her husband's personality, their age, life stage, circumstances, and so on. The externals will be different, but the inner attitudes will be the same. Uh, I think we should be honest that this is going to be hard. Because Genesis 3 reminds us that the fall into sin has really significantly impacted the relationship between husband and wife. So, so don't be surprised if this doesn't come naturally to you. Uh, to quote Claire Smith again, you might notice that I'm, I'm trying to let a woman have the inside view on this. Uh, Claire Smith writes, We are sinners, so wives will always want to control or resist their husband's leadership, uh, whether by nagging or, or yelling or manipulating or undercutting by using the kids in an emotional tug of war, by gossiping about his failings to other mothers or friends, by overspending his or their money, or by treating him like a child with patronizing condescension. How many husbands feel like they are treated like teenage sons rather than the heads of the household? End quote. Uh, growing in submission, it's, it's going to take hard work. It will take repentance, but there is forgiveness and there is strength in Jesus. And it will be time well spent, Peter says, because it will produce a type of beauty that is deeply attractive and never fades. 
in Australian society, uh, <laughs> we maybe don't use the word Lord uh, to show respect, like they did in times gone by. But Sarah's example of respecting Abraham is still worth noting. Uh, it's an example that I often witness in my beautiful wife, Shan. When Shan speaks well of me in front of my son or in front of other people, even though she knows my sin better than anyone else, when she chooses to build me up and encourage me, I can tell you, I find it so empowering and uplifting. It puts wind in my sails and it instantly spurs me on to be a better husband and a better father. Okay, husbands, two questions, and they should hit pretty hard. First, what criteria are you using to judge your wife's beauty? Do you follow the world and focus on external appearances, i.e. seeking a beauty that is bound to fade? Or do you follow God and look for the inner beauty of a gentle spirit, a, a mature faith, a pure life? Trust me, the world is doing a very good job of crushing your wife with impossible pressures and expectations when it comes to her appearance. She doesn't need you to help with that. But I ask you, is there anything more beautiful to see in your wife than her growing in her love for Jesus? To see her vision of God getting bigger and bigger. To see her increasingly realizing how loved she is and beautiful she is in God's sight. To see her having more and more clarity about how she can serve Him and live for Him and to see the fruit of the Spirit growing in her life. I am absolutely convinced there is nothing more attractive than that. And more and more I, I want that in my marriage with Sean, that that is what I pray for, that is what I look for, that is what I praise her for. Second, are you considerate in how you live with your wife? Do you honor and respect her as an equal, even as you take on the role of leadership that God's given you? Too easily as husbands, we focus on our own needs and desires. Too often we bring degrading sexual expectations from the world into the marriage bed. Finally, Peter has something very specific to say to Christians here today who are married to an unbeliever. I really hope that you will be deeply encouraged because Peter understands how hard that can be. And he understands that your deepest desire is that they would be saved. And he understands that sometimes words don't work anymore. Sometimes they've heard the gospel many times and they've read all the books and they've met your Christian friends and they've come to church and none of it seems to help. And if that's you, then hear Peter's practical advice. They may have stopped listening, but they haven't stopped watching. So keep trying to win them over through your behavior. Just like what we saw for all of us in chapter 2, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that they see your good deeds and glorify God. Make that your goal. It's going to look different depending on husband and wife. For a Christian wife, this is going to look like gentle and godly submission. For a Christian husband, this will look like servant-hearted sacrificial leadership. As you live like that, Peter says, verse 5, put your hope in God. 
Remember God's put you here for a reason. He knows your struggle and, and he delights in your inner beauty even if your spouse doesn't. God's not calling you to save your spouse. That's his job. He's simply calling you to trust and obey. Well, we have looked at a difficult passage this morning. But I hope you've come to see that God's design for marriage is a beautiful partnership. Two equals, both loving and serving each other through different roles, all for the Lord's sake. Our world may quite likely not want to hear us explain this with words. It may even offend them. But perhaps as we live it out, they'll see our good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Let's pray. Uh, great God, this, this is a, a difficult passage. It's, it's hard to hear and even harder to put into practice. And yet we're so thankful for it. We're thankful for your word we're thankful for any opportunity we get to see that your wisdom might be different to ours and even better than ours. We're thankful for the chance to be humbled, for the chance to sit under your word, under your authority, to learn from you about what is good and best, and to realize, Lord, that so many of our ideas, so much of our culture is, is twisted and out of line and out of priority and not always helpful at all. We pray for husbands and wives in this room today that wherever we are, whatever struggles we're facing, however this text has challenged us, that we would find forgiveness and strength and hope in Jesus Christ our Saviour. We pray for a church full of marriages that are healthy and thriving and flourishing where no one is abused or taken advantage of. And if it happens, Lord, that we would not sit idly by and say nothing or not be compassionate, not care. I also want to pray for those in this room who are not married, whether they've never been married or they once were and are now not. Lord, would you help them too to process this, to think about how it might shape their lives, what they aspire to. Lord, we pray that all of us as a church would have a view of marriage that is in accordance with your word, that we would live it out and that we'd be a light to the world as we do so. We pray that they might see our good lives and give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.